This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good. Good morning. My name is David Willits, President of the Resolution Foundation. And uh, we're today having an event focusing on trains, drains and mains. We've got a wordsmith in Resolution Foundation who is very good at these uh, formulating these deep issues we wrestle with. Uh, and we're publishing today a paper by Mary Starks, who's partner uh, in competition and regulatory practice at Flint. It's great that Mary has come along to launch her paper, which tackles the challenge of the role of regulation, particularly in promoting investment uh, in infrastructure. We're then going to hear comments from Eileen Armstrong, uh, who has worked at Ofwat, and also from Rob Salter-Church, who's head of regulatory strategy at National Grid. And there'll be opportunities for you guys to comment, and uh, we hope our online participants will also be putting in questions on Slido. Uh, but Mary, why don't you set the ball rolling? Over to you. I will, I will start. I'm going to stand up and use the, the comfort blanket of, of the lectern, partly because I need to to my notes. Um, thank you very much indeed uh, to the Resolution Foundation for suggesting this project, which I have enjoyed enormously. Um, struggled slightly to fit it in around the edges of the day job, but um, we got there in the end. Um, so the, my understanding about the genesis of this project is it's part of, or it's linked to the wider uh, Economy 2030 project that the Resolution Foundation has been doing. And that project has um, focused quite heavily on economic growth and equality as being two of the major challenges facing, facing the UK, which I would absolutely agree with. Um, <coughs> I've sort of taken that as a starting point for, for the paper. Uh, you, can, you can always debate the contribution of individual infrastructure uh, projects to economic growth, and that debate has been played out loud and messily around uh, high speed too. But I think overall it's, it's a fairly uncontroversial proposition that growth requires adequate infrastructure and that conversely inadequate infrastructure can hold growth back. So infrastructure matters for growth. And it also impacts um, inequality or equality, uh, both in terms of who benefits from what gets built, uh, but also from who pays and how, how the costs are recovering. So that's the sort of starting point for linking this, this project to the, this paper to the wider project. I've written about the role of economic regulation in supporting infrastructure investment. There are loads of other supporting conditions for infrastructure investment that I haven't uh, been able to get into in any depth. I've touched on some of them, um, notably an effective planning regime, and some I've just not, not been able to look at at all. Supply chains, skills, very important, but, but not my topic. So regulation is what I know, and that's what I focused on and I'm going to talk about today. There is a sort of sense in, in public policy circles, um, government circles and investor circles of, of dissatisfaction with, with regulators at the moment. Um, regulators are, to be clear, never popular. It's not a job that you take if you want to, you know, if you want adulation in, in the press. You don't expect balanced coverage. You expect only to hit the headlines when something goes catastrophically wrong. That is, that is priced in. But I think you know, even that said, recently there has been this kind of building, slightly inchoate sort of dissatisfaction about, about regulation, a sense that the system isn't working as it used to or, or as it should. Now, I'm not setting today to 
setting out to sort of stand up for regulators. I'm, I'm not one anymore, apart from anything else. But um, I think it is important to try and be balanced about addressing what has what is working well as well as what is not working well, because what works well gets so little attention. And so it's just important to sort of, um, you know, not throw it out with, with the bathwater. I have um, in the paper tried to cover quite a lot of ground while making the material moderately accessible as far as economic regulation papers can be accessible. Um, that has inevitably led to some sweeping generalisations and some major emissions. I've said a lot more about energy, which I know quite well, than about the other sectors. Um, there's all sorts of important debates I haven't even touched on. Um, the role of infrastructure in addressing regional inequality, uh, public versus private funding. Um, you know, maybe we can talk about some of those in, in the discussion today. The first part of the paper uh, tries to in briefly outline the, the big challenges in energy, water, communications and transport. So in energy, the, the major challenges ahead um, result from the need to decarbonise our energy system in order to achieve net zero. Now, I do not debate uh, either in the paper or in my head the merits of green policies. I just take it as read that the UK is committed to achieve net zero by 2050, and I focus on the changes that that requires. It involves building a lot more grid because we need a lot more electricity. So we need electricity to power everything we already need it for, plus replacing natural gas in our homes for keeping ourselves warm, plus replacing petrol for moving us around in our cars. So we need just a vast amount more um, electricity. And that um, means that we need more generation, but also a bigger grid. And the other reason we need a bigger grid is because quite a lot of the additional power will be coming from wind farms in the North Sea. And that power is both intermittent, you can't sort of rely on it totally, and it's also a very long way from, from the places where it is where it is used. So the, the challenge of constructing enough wires and putting them in the right places is, is, is huge, and, and Rob um, will talk more about that. The challenge in, in water, um, I would also link to, to climate change. There's a big need to adapt to um, new weather patterns in water, so we've got longer, drier summers. Um, at, but also more frequent intense rainstorms. So we've got both drought and flooding risks, which, um, you know, which is a sort of slightly evil combination. Um, I think in water we've managed to get away with um, reliance on our sort of amazing Victorian infrastructure for a very, very long time. Um, and that's given us some slightly strange path dependencies. So, you know, we flush our toilets and water our golf courses with top quality drinking water, which you know, would, ne would not necessarily have been a design choice uh, that we would have made where we're starting from scratch, but that's, that's the system we've got. Um, and we now need major system upgrades to make sure that we do have enough water for when it doesn't rain and enough sewage capacity to cope when it does. Communications, I will talk about briefly. I, I sort of cover communications a bit in the paper and then I sort of ignore it. Um, basically, the delivery of communications infrastructure has gone pretty well. Um, and looking ahead, there are no game-changing developments in, on the horizon in terms of how we lay broadband or, or build mobile phone masts. The big upcoming change in, in telecoms in communications regulation is probably around content, um, it's around data, artificial intelligence and, and cloud. Now, there are some infrastructure questions in there. For example, how to ensure that privately provided cloud services are resilient enough to support the banking system. Um, but on the whole, I, I've sort of parked those questions as largely being off topic for, for economic regulation, important as they are in their own right. 
In transport, a lot of the challenges come back to, um, to, to net zero. So the, the big one is electrifying uh, vehicles and building not only a grid big enough to supply the power, but also a network of charge points to access the power. Uh, for vehicles at, uh, in the in the right place uh, where they need to access it, and this challenge around building a a charging grid kind of typifies a type of uncertainty around um, infrastructure build and infrastructure regulation. We can forecast with a reasonable degree of certainty how many electric vehicles will be on our roads in, in 10 years time, but quite how we will use them and where we will charge them um, is, is still, still in the mist. So will I charge my car at home or at work? Will I need to top it up on the motorway when I'm driving to see my parents or will my battery get, get me the whole way there? Will I even own a car or will I just sort of rent one when I need it from a pool that is sort of managed and, and charged elsewhere? So the question around precisely where you need the charge points is, is very uncertain and has a high degree of interdependency on other policy choices. So, you know, will, will the idea of 15-minute cities take off? Uh, how much will we need private cars? Um, will new housing developments be designed with spaces to charge a, a car at home, or will they be, be designed to be car-free? So there's sort of, there's a, there's a lot of um, uncertainties and independencies around precisely which wires you need to lay where. So a common theme across energy, water and transport, and I'm now putting comms to one side, um, is knowing that we need to invest a lot, but being quite uncertain as to precisely which projects will prove to be the ones that we need. So some of that uncertainty is inherently unknowable. So we don't know how fast the cost of battery storage will fall, but that will be a big determinant of what the future um, grid looks like. Um, and some is interdependencies. So, you know, these are choices that we have yet to make. Where will houses be built and how will they be designed? So that, that sort of theme of uncertainties and, and interdependencies will, will come up. A second theme across the sectors is that we've got to do this at a time when bill payers are already very squeezed on, on cost of living. So, you know, there's, there's a sort of there's pressure to, to keep a tight lid on um, essential costs and, and bills for essential services. But at the same time, investors are cooling on the UK as a place to invest or, or rattled about the UK as a place to invest. So I think the political instability of, of recent years has slightly shaken what used to be a pretty solid consensus that the UK was a good destination for investment. That's, that's, um, that's unravelling a bit and that is a, is a worry. So that's sort of um, some, some important backdrop. Let's get to, let's get to the economic regulation. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a, a primer for those who are less familiar with it. The, the, post, the, the model of economic regulation that came in after privatisation in, in the 80s and 90s was known as RPI minus X or regulated asset base um, regulation. And these are sort of two titles for broadly the same thing. The three central ideas in this are, firstly, that private companies and their investors are allowed to earn a rate of return on assets that are included in the regulatory asset base. So the thing that the regulator sort of has its arms around, um, if your asset is in that, you'll, the regulator will allow you to earn a, a return on it. Second feature is that over time, uh, prices move upwards in line with inflation um, minus a factor that represents efficiency gains. So the idea is, you know, the prices move with, with prices, but that there should be some, some pressure on, on costs to, to, to drive efficiency. So that's, 
the RPI um, is the, the inflation measure and X is the, the efficiency measure in, in RPI minus X regulation. And the third idea, which is extremely important, is that the process of price setting is overseen by a regulator who operates independent of political influence. And that is because you are asking investors to put their money into um, assets with an asset life of 30 to 50 years, which are quite literally sunk in the ground. Um, so, you know, if your gas grid stops making you money, it's not like you can take dig it up and, and repurpose it. You've, you've got to persuade um, investors to put money into um, this stuff where they're going to earn they're going to earn the money back over 30 to 50 years and so that promise that they will be allowed to earn the money back has to be able to withstand electoral cycles and withstand changes in government and that's why it's taken out of the political arena and sort of placed into the uh, the technocratic arena so the <laughs> the independent economic regulator um, approves which assets are included in the regulatory asset base um, including approving new capital expenditure it sets the allowed rate of return. It determines how much investors should be should be able to earn from this, and it sets X. So it sets how uh, steep of an efficiency challenge to to do. And most regulators do this on a kind of five-year cycle. I think there's two things that I would like to flag here. The first is that 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 promise is incredibly powerful. Um, you know, it's a it's a the the promise that um, if you can persuade the regulator to include your asset in the regulatory asset base, you will be allowed to earn a return on it for 30 to 50 years is an incredibly um, big use of, if you like, other people's money. So this is this is the regulator saying, yep, customers customers are going to pay for that. So it's a, it's a big thing that promise. So what gets included in the regu in the regulatory asset base is incredibly important, and. The other thing to to note is that if you are a private company, you've got quite a strong incentive to get as much in as possible because once you're in, it's 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 a good deal. Second thing to flag is that this means the job of the regulator is to approve the necessary expenditure. We need to make sure that that the stuff comes into the regulatory asset base that, that we need to keep the lights on and meet net zero and, and all that good stuff. So you want the good stuff in, but you want to reject any unnecessary costs. So the regulator's job is a kind of gateway job um, of, of ensuring that the right stuff is in the in the base, but ensuring that, the, that any sort of excessive cost or waste or unnecessary projects are out so that customers don't have to pay for them. So regulators are always trying to hit that sweet spot, let the important stuff in, keep the wasteful stuff out. And the job, my basic thesis in this paper is the job of the task of finding that sweet spot is getting quite a lot harder um, than it was in, in the immediate aftermath of privatisation when these institutions were, were set up and these regimes were designed. And it's, it's, it's harder because firstly the job of knowing what we need to build and when we need to build it and where we need to build it is harder as, as I've sort of touched on and I think secondly it's um, it's harder because of this sort of crunch between um, the, the, the sort of landing zone tolerable landing zone between the needs of customers and the needs of investors that zone is under pressure so the customers are feeling worse off and you know increasingly looking to regulators to challenge hard on do bills really need to be that high at the same time as investors are feeling that the whole thing has got quite a lot more risky and would like it to be you know either those risks taken off the table or compensated a bit more generously so finding finding that landing zone is is difficult I don't have any um, 
particularly easy answers as to uh, what to do about all this, but I, I can uh, outline some of the difficulties. The first set of difficulties is that we there's, there's quite a lot of trade-offs involved in infrastructure delivery. We want infrastructure delivery to be fast, we want it to be efficient, and we want it to be affordable, to cost as little as possible and to have those costs sort of spread fairly. And there are trade-offs between those things. It's hard to have them all. Um, so there's a trade-off between uh, speed and efficiency. So, you know, if you, if you really want to go fast for net zero, and we have committed to doing that, there is a risk that you're going to end up building some white elephants. You'll build some stuff that ends up not being being used. Um, there are trade-offs between speed and fairness. So when we think about things like um, how we migrate customers off the gas grid and onto electric heating in the home, um, you know, other things being equal, those with the least ability to afford to upgrade to a heat pump will be the last to go. And so there's a risk that the sort of um, costs of the gas grid fall on a on a dwindling and increasingly vulnerable set of customers. So managing that is, is going to be quite difficult. And getting the incentives right around that, how you price gas relative to electricity so as to encourage that migration but not penalise um, those being left behind is, is quite difficult. The second um, set of challenges is around getting the institutional framework right for navigating these trade-offs. Um, Broadly speaking, you want uh, sort of experts and technocrats in charge of deciding what needs to be built and in charge of keeping the costs down, but you want democratic, uh, democratic accountability for um, serious sort of decisions about reallocation of resources from one group to another, subsidies needed to, to make these things happen or to... Um, to compensate people who've been, been made worse off. And you need some democratic accountability around whose backyard this stuff gets built in. Uh, and getting that balance right, which decisions belong to expert technocrats and, and which to democratically elected politicians, um, is hugely difficult. As is, the, you know, as is the question of, you know, you can delegate the decision to expert technocrats, but there needs to have some sort of legitimacy. So what is the source of, of legitimacy for those decisions, for those, um, those public servants? So that's quite a difficult set of questions. I won't um, now go into sort of all the, all the detail in the paper, but my broad thesis is if you want private capital to turn up and, and build this stuff, you still need an independent regulator to guarantee revenues. And this is the thing that has worked well, and this is the thing that doesn't get very much attention and that you don't want to lose. So that, I think, is, is important to just sort of clock. Um, second thing is if you want customers to shoulder the cost of more more infrastructure, bigger infrastructure, riskier infrastructure, you need to maintain public confidence that the stuff has been built efficiency, efficiently so that there's not kind of waste and unnecessary cost in the system and that the costs have been spread fairly so that uh, you know, everyone's sort of bearing, bearing their fair share of the cost. Third thing is if you want big uncertain and interdependent decisions taken on what needs to get built, we probably need more, um, more whole system planning, um, certainly to deal with the interdependencies, leaving it to price signals and the kind of dance whereby private companies sort of rock up to the regulator and say, I want to build this wire, can I, yes, no, um, that doesn't give you a coherent infrastructure strategy and a sort of, you know, level of economic philosophy, if you like, um, leaving, leaving it to price signals in the market doesn't really work when that is only half of what is going on. So 
in energy, there is an attempt to put price signals into the market around location of generation. Ideally, it's cheaper to have location generated close to where demand is. So the price signals are sort of giving you that message. But the planning system is giving you quite a strong message that the only place you're going to be able to build wind farms at scale is in the middle of the North Sea. So so just, I think, having where, where you've got um, quite a lot of non-price decision-making going on, then leaving, leaving it to free market mechanisms is less likely to work. And therefore, that does put the question of planning and central planning sort of back on the table. So that, that set of issues is what's given rise to uh, what I've called in the paper um, guiding mind proposals. And we're seeing these emerge in, in a few sectors. So these are fairly advanced in um, energy. They've been sketched out in rail and they've been talked about in, in water at least. So in energy, the key proposal is to create an independent systems operator, which uh, is something that will be spun out of National Grid. And this is a, an institution that will have the expertise to determine uh, what needs to be built, but doesn't stand itself to profit from overbuilding. So it's sort of not got a, um, it's not got an economic dog in the race. So it won't own the assets itself. There is a vast amount of devilish detail in, in that proposal um, and, and a lot still to be decided. Will this body be public or private, run for profit or, or not? But I think there's also for me a really important kind of uh, warning in there. We want a guiding mind because of the incentive problems of private companies deciding what to build and the information problems of regulators trying to work out whether, whether we need it or not. Creating a new institution doesn't of itself get over either the information problems or the incentive problems. It just it just kind of moves them around a bit. So the one thing you will absolutely not get from um, guiding mind reforms is an omniscient, benevolent central planner. You don't get to have God come and design your, your energy system. You get a bunch of bureaucrats in an office. And it's only worth doing if you can be confident that you can set those people up to, to, to just be better placed to... to address those issues than, than the old institutions. So I think that's a kind of quite serious health warning about, about this stuff. Um, in addition to uh, thinking about proposals for guiding minds for system planning, I've also proposed a stronger role for independent expert advisors, such as the National Infrastructure Commission, the Committee on Climate Change, both in advising government on what needs to be built. Um, I think they could probably uh, have quite a strong role in challenging government on wishful thinking. The Committee on Climate Change already does quite a lot of this, a little bit like what the OBR does for challenging wishful thinking on, on, on f challenging fiscal wishfulness, um, and, and a role in holding governments and regulators uh, to account for delivery. And again, the Committee on Climate Change does this um, around uh, holding government to account for delivery of, of carbon budgets. <coughs> Lastly, um, I think there should be a more considered and accountable role for regulators in matters of fairness and distribution. I don't think they should own all the fairness and distribution problems. I, I think anything that involves uh, reallocating resources from one group of customers to another, the big subsidy policy um, should, should be owned by elected governments. But the regulators have, even within the limits of um, allocating costs between different customer groups. They have quite a big role in distributional outcomes. I think they should um, sort of
be given that role more explicitly, own it more explicitly, and be much more transparent about how they think about that. Regulators have, have struggled with this in the past. They sort of have liked to their comfort zone is doing technical economic things, and so they've tended to think about cost allocation in terms of Ramsey pricing and market distortions and allocative efficiency. But the, the whole debate around the loyalty penalty um, in several utility sectors really brought to the fore the fact that that's not how the public thinks about these things. And um, I think if you're a regulator and you're accountable to the public, you need to be able to say, um, this is how I think about, about fairness. This is, what I, this, this is how I've made my decisions on this. It's quite hard. Um, I would give a shout out here to my old team at the Financial Conduct Authority, who I thought made a very good start um, at articulating the FCA's approach to fairness in pricing. And the way they started that was basically by articulating a bunch of things they thought were unfair. So rather than trying to sort of um, pin down precisely what we mean by fairness, start calling out, well, these are the things that we've, we feel are patently unfair and, and we will take action on. I think regulators need to, need to raise their game on that stuff. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of broadly the, the, what's going on in the paper. Um, coming back to the sort of babies in the bathwater and the economic regulators, I think the, that the key challenge remains to bring forward uh, new investment while keeping a lid on costs for customers. And much about the existing regulatory framework does that quite well. But um, I think the job of deciding what gets built needs to go elsewhere and regulators need to be uh, clearer about how they're dealing with fairness issues. That's, that's kind of my conclusion. Thank you, Mary. There you Thank you. Uh, now, let's hear comments from our panellists. Eileen, Eileen Armstrong uh, is now at the Solicitors Regulatory Authority and a fascinating and important role. But you were previously at Ofwat, and perhaps now that you've left Ofwat, you can ditch the dirt. <laughs> and we want to know about how you tackle these issues at Ofwat and what the lessons are for wider policy. Right, I'll try not to disappoint. Um, the first thing I want to say, um, you know, uh, thank you for, for this opportunity to talk to you this morning, but also um, I thought Mary's paper is fascinating. It's got tons of things in there. I am going to limit my comments, actually. Um, I'm going to focus on um, kind of building on this uh, guiding mind idea that you, you, you talked about. Um, and, you know, in, in water, um, the, the debate about the possibility of a systems operator or a catchment operator has been a lively one for, for some time. You know, I don't think it has uh, fully played out. And, you know, I, I would say that, of course, I see merits in, 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 in this um, idea. Um, but I'm actually going to sort of leave that to one side, um, just in, in my comments, try and build in, in some additional thoughts. Um, partly because I think ultimately, and I'll come back to this, ultimately, I think, you know, it is this point that there are some questions which are public policy questions and for, for government. So, uh, you know, I'll come back to that. But what I was going to do was I was going to touch on um, ideas from the water sector that I think are, are relevant builds on, on that guiding mind idea. Um, I'm just going to talk very briefly about three themes. And, and my three points are um, long-term planning, uh, innovation, and holistic solutions. Um, because I think all of these really need to be addressed um, to crack that challenge that, that Mary pointed out of really um, 
delivering better um, you know what is really needed but in a best value way um, and just before I get on to those kind of three three themes just a little aside about best value and I will go back to um, there's lots of criticisms of off what I'm, I, and, and I'm outside of off what now um, and I never felt the need to particularly defend any one position but I do think this point about best value is quite an important one to draw out um, because, you know, I do believe that off what and pretty much all economic regulators um, are driven by a kind of public interest desire. Um, and I think it has always been about looking for best solutions rather than low cost solutions. Um, so, you know, I think some of the criticism of, of what I think is, is unfair in terms of, you know, this idea that does seem to persist that economic regulators are just there, you know, to, to drive, down, drive down costs. Um, I think something that's often overlooked is that uh, certainly in water, water companies have statutory obligations to uh, design, deliver, maintain um, the infrastructure that is required to deliver for customers. So that should be a given. Um, and then it's about the efficiency in, in doing that rather than any kind of trade-offs. It's about kind of slicing off things that are essential. So I do think it's quite important to just make that, that point about best value. But then my, my builds. Um, in terms of long-term planning, you know, I think one of the things it's touched on, but we could bring out more, um, is you know that uncertainty in the future. Mary, you were talking about, and it resonated with me. You know, electric vehicles and 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 charging points, etc. Direct parallels in in water in terms of. Um, you know, I think it's really important that people do challenge wishful thinking, but also acknowledge that it is hugely uncertain. So what do you need for that? You need mechanisms that can manage that long-term uncertainty. Um, and so any guiding mind institution, I think really needs expertise in adaptive planning. And it needs to you know, build that in, make sure it's drawing in the expertise that can identify you know, what scenarios might be and therefore what various solutions might be needed. Just in water, just to give you an example, um, in the current price control um, exercise, all of the water companies have been told to produce long-term delivery strategies. This is something to put the context of a five-year uh, uh, business plan into, so into a 25-year long-term delivery strategy to basically identify the range of scenarios that are possible over that 25 years and then be able to identify um, you know what pathway what adaptive pathway you might need so that in that first five-year step PR24 going on at, at the moment in that first five-year step yes you will fund things that are definitely needed but you will also fund the options for what might be needed in an uncertain future. I think we need to build that in. My, my second theme was, was the innovation point. And I mean, this is, again, a fundamental for the background to privatization and trying to look for hopefully driving better solutions. Um, and I think we do still need to pay attention to where the incentives are coming from in any system to make sure that 
companies and others who do have an incentive to load things on their their rab in, in water actually you know where where is the incentive to actually you know identify as those best value right solutions um, and so uh, again a couple of examples that I'll just mention we might get into into more you know in water there has been you know a different model really adopted for the Thames Tideway tunnel um, you know and, and and so you know that might be an idea that has wider application and in, um, in water regulation there is something called DPCs which is direct procurement for consumers which is actually about identifying uh, significant infra projects um, and taking them out of the RAB and actually getting the water companies to procure those for customers from a third party so there are ideas out there that I think we could possibly build on and just finally, it's that need, and Mary has touched on this, you know, for holistic solutions. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure how well, there's no need really for most people to really understand the intricacies of how water regulation works. But I think it is often overlooked that the current position in water, um, it's not often that decides what is required um, in terms of environmental delivery. That is the role of the Environment Agency and Natural Resources Wales, um, and that's backed by government. So in water, you do have this set of requirements in a national environment programme, and the role of the economic regulator there is to say, OK, how is that efficiently delivered? And I think that brings up its own kind of issues, because even when you have that kind of separation, I think the challenge for, for example, the EA is very, very difficult. Because, you know, one example that sticks in my mind is that, you know, you can be sat opposite a company that's saying, OK, I'm required to chemically dose uh, wastewater before um, I put it out into to the environment. I would prefer to uh, do a nature-based solution that's more sustainable, going to be a better answer over the long term, but is uncertain and might fall foul of, of environmental regulations. So there are quandaries that still need to be tackled, which brings me right back to my starting point. I do think we should develop this thinking a lot more. I do think we also have to acknowledge that actually there isn't some objective, technocratic right answer out there that, that just enough expertise is going to pluck from somewhere. Um, and I think we do have to acknowledge that what we need is a system where it's very transparent, where there are political decisions reflecting people's expectations and where there is a system that then can work to bring the best delivery of that. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Eileen. Um, well, we're now going to hear from Rob, Rob Salterchurch, who is uh, head of regulatory strategy at National Grid. And of course, National Grid is an absolute case study in this idea of carving out a role for us kind of single organising mind with independent system operator. And I understand it carved out partly from National Grid and partly from Ofgen. So Rob, very interested in your observations on that and more widely. Cool. Perfect. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, I guess I'll start with one of Mary's observations that the system has worked so far. Like I think that is really important to recognise in, in energy. Britain's electricity grid is one of the cleanest in the world. We've got record numbers of renewables connected. And as a country, we've reduced our carbon emissions by almost half since 1990. That's the biggest reduction of any G7 country. So I think we have to recognise, actually, we have achieved a lot already in bringing the electricity system into the 21st century. But it's not going to work going forward 
given the scale of the transformation that we need to, to see. Mary talked about the, the, the scale, just bring that to life a little bit uh, in energy. So to support the decarbonisation of the grid by 2035, you need between a four and four and a half and six times the growth in offshore wind that we've seen hitherto. Two and a half to five uh, times growth in solar and a staggering 10 times as many batteries connected to the system. And on our part, by 2030, uh, we need to deliver over the five times as much transmission build as we have in the last 30. So the scale of what we need to do is significant and that does require a different, a different approach. I guess I'd start with a different approach thinking about cost and value, just this particular conversation. And I think historically the focus has been very much on cost, but over time the regulators and the regulatory framework I think has evolved to, to think about broader value incentive regulation put on the networks and others to deliver improved quality of service and we've seen that happen. For me where we go next with cost and value is getting regulators to take a holistic approach to thinking about cost. So in a world where we are trying to accelerate delivery there are actually greater value for to consumers to avoid constraining off renewables which we sometimes have to do to pay renewables not to generate because there are constraints on the grid actually the value of building out quicker and potentially having a slightly less focus on short-term efficiency actually could have a greater impact on reducing the cost for consumers. So for me, part of what we need to see with economic regulation on this kind of cost versus value is an evolution of what they're focused on, which is thinking about the holistic end cost of the bill for consumers rather than just the slice that may be attributed to the chunk that they regulate. And without having a, a comment on kind of green policies, I think you just have to listen to what the National Infrastructure Commission recently said, that actually delivering more renewable power will reduce costs ultimately for consumers relative to a fossil fuel future, whilst at the same time is improving our energy security. So win, win, win in accelerating the pace of delivery. And how we do that, kind of five things uh, in, in our sector, I've taken a slightly more holistic approach. So planning, communities, what we do with regulation, what we do with connecting things, another part of regulation, and then supply chain and skills. Just quickly talk cantering through those. Planning is probably the biggest barrier that we face in the sector to be able to deliver the new infrastructure that we need. The wind farms are in different places to traditional generation. That means we need to put in grid infrastructure through places that have not traditionally had grid infrastructure. Picking up on the guiding mind point, that actually, as well as solving part of the problem around what gets built and deciding, also can play a role in fixing some of the planning challenges. So in energy, the plan is for what's called a strategic spatial energy plan. And uh, now what that is, so that will map out where our energy infrastructure at a large scale is going to go in the energy uh, in, in the UK. And then the idea is that plan then ha gets uh, standing in planning and then enables us to move more quickly through the planning process to be able to, to build the infrastructure that's needed. We know already, as a result of government decisions or where wind is strongest, for example, where a lot of our energy infrastructure will go. We don't tie that together currently into a, into a single plan, and there is no plan that sits in planning. So a strategic spatial energy plan prepared by the new future system operator has real potentials to kind of make a practical impact on us being able to bring our uh, infrastructure into the 21st century. 
on communities, the support of communities, both at the local and national level, is vital if we deliver this transition. Um, industry's got a role to play uh, in doing that. But we do need more uh, than, than just industry engaging local communities. We think there is, it, it's right that local communities that are hosting critical national net zero infrastructure get some direct reward in the local communities and there should be a consistent framework for that to be able to happen. That's going to be key to how we bring people along. I, I agree with what Mary said on fairness and affordability and the kind of difference between what regulators maybe should do versus what government should do in terms of that affordability agenda versus a fairness one. On regulation, I won't go through, through the, the detail, but maybe two things that I think will be key for us to be able to achieve what we need to do. The first is having a framework that's explicitly designed to deal with anticipatory investment. We need to be able to invest ahead of need so that we can reduce the queue for people to connect to the grid, that we can reduce the cost of constraint costs. We know that it tends to take longer because of planning and other issues to build grid infrastructure than it does generation. So we need to start earlier and we need to get a regulatory framework that enables us to do that without exposing us to excessive risk that ultimately feeds through into higher costs for consumers if investors don't know that that bet that they're making, that confidence they're getting, that they'll be able to recover that investment. And that needs to be part of that anticipatory investment framework. Second is about clarity and steers from government to the regulator about what's important and that they should be prioritising investment in net zero in every decision they make. Um, briefly, a bit of a, a comparison with um, communications, which Mary said actually has worked quite well. I think we would agree there is a mechanism where government within the realms of independent economic regulation can steer their regulators. In telecoms, there is a very clear strategic statement that says, I paraphrase, the most important thing is investing to deliver the 2025-26 broadband target and prioritise that over short-term retail prices. That is a very clear steer to a regulator to be able to interpret what's needed. And I think we would think something similar is needed in the strategy and policy statement for, for Ofgem to be able to focus on investing. And ultimately that investment brings down costs and prices anyway. Um, connections, I won't talk uh, in any great detail. People probably hear in the press, there are uh, long queues to connect to the system. We need to move away from the first come first serve approach that we've got to something which enables uh, projects that are ready to accelerate past those that, that aren't ready. That's, that's key, but very kind of idiosyncratic to maybe where the energy sector is. And then finally, supply chain and skills. Uh, there's a huge amount of investment happening in the UK in infrastructure, but also globally. We're already seeing constrained supply chains across all sorts of investments that we need to make. Demand outstrips supply, and that is affecting when projects can be delivered. We need a regulatory framework that enables uh, companies to send strong signals to the supply chain to increase their capacity, to make early and long-term commitments for big programmatic investments over multiple 5, 10, 15-year time horizons so that they will invest in the capacity, an opportunity for the UK, for the UK to invest in capacity and get some economic benefits from this. But that trickle-down of guiding mind through into what gets allowed through the regulatory framework, through the decisions we can then commi commitments we can then make to the supply chain will help unblock that particular challenge. So in conclusion, yeah, it's an immense challenge. I'm pretty confident that it can be done if we can put those reforms in place. 
and personally from our organisation, we're investing £16 billion in the next five years to, to do our bit to try to achieve it. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Rob. Thank you to all our panellists. And do, of course, use Slido, to put, which you can access via our website, to put your questions, which are beginning to come in. Um, let me start with the kind of exam question for us at Resolution Foundation, which is that we are just completing uh, an, our economic inquiry into how we raise Britain's performance for 2030. We're publishing the report the beginning of December. Um, one of the powerful tools for delivering it is the regulators, and one of the key objectives is getting more investment, including in infrastructure. So in terms of, it would be very interesting to hear briefly from our three speakers on what we should be proposing. And I think, so in other words, we're basically, could you help us write that section of our report? And we've got about <laughs> half an hour. And my impression, the, the way the conversation has gone so far, and the way your report is structured, is the organising mind is seen as a welcome, useful initiative, even though by describing the organising mind as a bunch of bureaucrats in an office, you did manage to make it sound rather less sexy than we had hoped. But is that, is that the proposal? If you had a list of one or two priority things to do to get more investment in infrastructure going, is it organising mind? Is it something else as well? Just very briefly, Mary, you want to use it just to clarify where you are personally. So I think... Um Yes, the, the, the guiding mind is definitely part of it. And it, it sort of manifests in different ways in different sectors. And so I'm a bit wary of sweeping generalisations, trying to tell the same story about uh, electricity as about rail. They're very different problems. But in both sectors, I think you, you need uh, more of a sense of what the overall game plan is and how the bits fit together than we have had historically. So I think that is important. The other thing I think is very important, <coughs> quite hard to achieve is, as, as Rob says, that sort of very strong, consistent, enduring signals about what the game plan is over a very long period. And there's been a particularly uh, rough period of noise in the signal recently around um, environmental policies. And that is just terrible from a supply chain point of view, from a planning point of view, from an investment competence point of view. And this is where you've got, this is where the sort of art of getting the responsibilities between um, elected politicians and independent technocrats is so important because what you want ideally is for the politicians to feel that it is convenient to them to delegate some of this difficult stuff to a bunch of other people who can then make a call um, that will last over multiple electoral cycles. And what's very damaging is when that stuff gets kind of dragged back in um, for political expediency and, and short-term um, short-term political wins take over uh, and so I think it, it's, I, it's no easy answer about how to do it but depoliticizing infrastructure planning is so important for investment and therefore for cost and therefore for everybody so I think that's the second focus. Thank you very much. Eileen your yeah. answer on that? Yeah so I agree with a lot of that so I'll take a slightly different angle um, uh, just to kind of build on that. I do think there's um, probably um, more opportunity for the kind of cross rect uh, cross-regulator 
discussions and opportunities where actually there is overlap there are questions about um, you know big infrastructure projects maybe being done uh, together or or even the much smaller scale kind of pipes in, in the ground question I think there's probably more that can be done in terms of um, regulators being able to, to talk and design those in water there's um, the example of um, for you know the question of whether we do need um, you know new big uh, particularly reservoirs you know that haven't been built for, for a number of years there's there's a program there which is cross-regulator uh, called rapid which is about actually identifying those kind of um, the needs what the pathways are bringing in and discussing locally on what are the planning issues bringing forward those questions that I think you know actually you could put more on regulators to enable and convene those solutions as well. Yeah. Now, and now, Rob, it was very interesting. You were very clear on this. Um, and of course, you're you saying the national grid is not kind of prissy and protectionist. You're actually happy for this new entity to come in. And you think that a having this new entity partly replacing Ofgen and partly national grid is a good thing. Um, do you, can I invite you just to think more widely? Do you, can you see that model Obviously, you're less expert. Can that, is that model reproducible in other places? I, I think it is. And I think the, the reason why it could be considered and maybe should be considered going further is, uh, as Eileen said, about holistic planning. So the interactions with uh, the different infrastructure sectors are quite significant. So water is one of the, the biggest consuming sectors. I mean, energy is one of the, the, great, the biggest costs the water companies have transport, what's going to happen with decarbonisation of aviation and future of Heathrow, all of those things feed back into actually what your energy plan needs to look like. So I think I would advocate for starting, starting small, get it happening, get it working, learning what you're doing, energy is the most progressed in this, but definitely think about how you then integrate with other strategic plans because they are all interrelated. Thank you very much. There's also a, a sort of geographic levels aspect to this. So some plans need to be integrated nationally and some need to be integrated at the level of the local town council. So there's quite a lot of complicated meshing to do. Right. Now, we're going to call up a poll now just to ask our participants online to put in their views, which is trying to identify uh, the question of the, what they... Uh, here we are. Here we are, it briefly appeared. I think we both pushed, pushed about the same time. So let's try to get the question up again, which is where should the balance of power shift to? Um, and we've got here, we've got another one of that. We, we're so good at the, we're so good at formulating these things. The, the think tank that brought you uh, mains, drains and trains now brings you a choice between Democrats, <coughs> technocrats and fat cats. So is the power really, because the more and more obligations we place on the regulators, are they actually really taking highly sensitive political decisions? Uh, so the, should the technocrats decide? Um, is it really ultimately for elected politicians? Should the Democrats decide? Or the fat cat option, which is companies deciding what they want to do subject to some kind of regulatory framework. So I will invite our online participants to vote in their answers. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Meanwhile, I'm just going to see if there are people here with us at resolution who want to put people who are physically attending. Anybody here who wishes to put any questions to our 
panelists. Yeah, we've got a roving mic. We've got a question in the front row, and then I'll go to our online participants. Yes. Uh, the transition to net zero is taking place at the same time as shrinking working age populations in many, if not most, advanced economies. I saw a chart of the UK construction industry workforce recently, and it skews heavily to uh, people born in the 1960s, who, who are all hitting 60 in the 2020s, who knew. Um, so you know, we, the timetables for all the countries are very similar, so we're all going to be doing the same stuff at the same time. So assuming that we're going to be able to import skills from abroad looks less likely because there'll be plenty of work for people in their own countries. I just look at all this and think, who's going to do all the work? Yeah. And I'm going, that's a very good question. And I'm going to link it to one of our online questions. So I think, sir, your question is about kind of the people who've got the expertise to design complex infrastructure and all that, as we've seen with issues like nuclear. There's also another related skills question, which is where's the expertise actually to write these sophisticated plans, another area where we may have skills shortages. Uh, so Eileen, your observations on what was just the skills challenge? Yeah, so I mean, I recognise it hugely, um, you know, in terms of the kind of uptick that's expected in water over the next uh, few years. I think one of the biggest constraints is the actual deliverability, both in kind of boots and spades on the ground, but also that design capability. Um, so just to take a slightly different angle on it, I think what that also does is create even more pressure on the innovative solutions and trying to think around the piece that, um, yes, there will need to be more pouring of concrete and big infra projects. But certainly in water, I think the um, capacity for greater water efficiency, um, actually, you know, we come back to leakage again, uh, these other questions that, of course, you know, do need uh, some man, man or woman power to, to deliver. But actually, I think that balance in terms of actually how we use water comes under additional pressure. And so those solutions that maybe looked uneconomic in the past in terms of um, you know, reducing leakage or maybe unpalatable in the past in terms of you know, our water efficiency numbers in this country are not good, but actually being able to put pressure on that because um, we can do some things, Rob talked about, a number of things that we can do in terms of you know, signalling long term, but you can't magic people out of nothing. And so I think you need to think around and have you know, uh, a real um, jigsaw of solutions. And Rob, your comments, and, and I mean, when uh, my experience when, as a minister, I used to deal with DEC, as it was called, was that it was full of economists and had no civil engineers. Now, I don't know whether that's a perfectly sensible way of doing it, because the challenge was designing smart markets, and the people actually who knew how to design and make stuff were elsewhere, or whether that reflected a kind of underlying conceptual failure that we thought if we just had incredibly sophisticated, you know, and people could argue things like contracts with difference were very sophisticated models, the rest would just happen. So have we got the right mix of skills? So I think for me, one of the, one of the benefits of moving to this guiding mind model and having, uh, is having different institutions responsible for different parts of the puzzle linked to where their core capabilities lie. 
so for example, in Ofgem, there is an engineering function, there is a strong economic uh, function. They will need both. But quite often what we see when we go through the process is you have an organization that is more focused on economic regulation that goes through its veins, making decisions around what infrastructure should go where. And actually for me, it's, right. it's not about it may or may not be right or wrong to have an institution just with one particular type of capabilities, but let's think about which which decisions, which people, which skills, and then almost to the point about the, the challenge where they all come from, that also helps you avoid overlap, different people marking each other's homework that ultimately is duplicative, but there's an opportunity here to think about how we apply skills in the right places. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how the skills match that uh, changes our uh, intervention online about you know where the, where are these people? Even the Institute for Civil Engineers around the corner, which reminds me the reason why sitting here in Westminster, the Institute for Civil Engineers is around the corner, and the Institute of Mechanical Engineers, and the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, is in the 19th century when you wanted to build private railways, these were your lobbyists. You didn't have institutes of economists, you had the civil engineers and the mechanical engineers and charge affairs all planning them, writing the private legislation and then walking down the road to get the MPs to pass it. So this was how it used to be done, harnessing the engineers as the lobbyists. And it's now the same area is full of uh, regulators and think tanks focusing on an economic case. So our model of how we do it has has shifted. Do you worry about the skills mix? Do you, have we got the right skills mix, Mary? Um, I mean, I do. Uh, I mean, I worry about the demographic demographic challenges of the UK generally. So I worry about it just as much in the NHS as I do in, in engineering. But in the same way as you see the NHS starting to think about workforce planning and and long term, you know, have we got enough medical students coming through because we can't just bribe them to come here from elsewhere? Um, I think we need the same sort of workforce planning around. Um, you know, electrical engineers. And I think institutions, um, it, I mean, it's not really my area of expertise, but I think I understand that National Grid has been the centre of excellence for recruiting um, engineers, electrical engineers out of universities for doing things like getting more women into electrical engineers. So this sort of sponsoring institutions, I think, have a really important right. role. That sponsorship out into a collaborative whole industry supported by government is important because we need to we need to make the pipe bigger rather than just take resources from one organization and move yeah. them around and that's I think one of the big challenges to get everybody to make those investments together across industry to grow the pipe so are you saying that another role for the organizing mind institution is thinking about the skills channel not just thinking about it identifying and promoting um, the training of people, start-offs or matures, in the, in the relevant skills. It's definitely a job that needs doing, whether it sits best with government or guiding mind or delivery company, I don't know, actually. Um. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we'll solve that by the time we produce yeah. our final report. Uh, now, let's get the response to the poll, and then I'm going to ask a question, put a, pose a question that follows on from that. But let's see, first of all, mm -hmm. ah, that's interesting, very strong support oh, for, the for the regulators over the politicians and the companies, as these people think these decisions should be taken by the regulators. And that leads very well onto the question, I think the question from Lizzie Roberts follows 
on from that very neatly, which is you do re you require public support, especially in the kind of world that our poll envisages. So just take us through how then, you've been at the sharp end of this, how as regulators you then have to explain and communicate. If you're, taking, if you're going to take responsibility for these decisions, um, uh, how we, well equipped you are to engage with the public on them. Uh, Rob, why don't you start off? Yeah, so um, almost back to the poll, I think you need decisions in the democratic layer and in the technocratic layer. And for me, again, thinking about my former life in Ofgem where everybody hates you and it's difficult to make decisions and you get judged by hindsight the whole time. Try being a politician. <laughs> <laughs> the, I think there is, it would be advantageous for regulators if there was a clearer steer around decisions that are taken at the democratic layer that then get fed into how they need to act. So for me, back to the strategy and policy statement, that is a great vehicle for government to make certain decisions mm. about what it expects the regulator to do, whether it's on fairness, whether it's on infrastructure build, and that helps the regulator to justify some of the difficult decisions they're making. Every decision for them will be a trade-off, yeah. and actually I think it's right and it helps ensure legitimacy for the regulator's mm. decisions to have that flow down through that strategy mm. policy statement. Yeah. I mean, the, I agree with that. I think the trick is how do you get the political layer to exercise sort of self-discipline about not cascading too much down? And the other field I've done a bit of work in recently is pensions, which is also a field where ideally you'd want policy decisions, um, you know, lasting decades and sort of stability um, in, in policy settings for, for very sort of long-term um, asset allocation and, and so on and actually what the uh, the sort of technocrats in pension world are dealing with is kind of constant sort of initiative-itis and mm. oh we've got to deal with pension freedoms and now we've got to do a pension dashboard and now we've got to um, find more you know put more money into um, long-term asset funds and, so, and, and just the ability of the technocratic layer to respond to and deliver change that comes quite fast from above is is a real problem in um in pensions and so it's sort of i think what you're talking about is exactly right if if the stuff comes down at the right rate so only only when it's needed and that is a that is a self-discipline question but i don't yeah. know what the institutional answer to that is Eileen? yeah and so i i again agree with all that the the only thing that i would say um uh, to, to rob's point you know absolutely agree with it that i was sat there often thinking you know if this would just stay still or people would stay consistent you know that would help yeah. we're not in an ideal world and i do think there's more you know, even without that ideal um, that regulators can and should and some are doing in terms of, you know, I think maybe a number of years ago, regulators didn't really talk to consumers mm -hmm. and they didn't mm -hmm. hear directly enough from consumers. And so I think just having that a, a considerable enough function within a regulator that does that, so that it is a two-way, understands the impact on people, can actually feed that back in to yep. um, uh, policymakers as well. But also I think that helps with uh, the ability to explain what one is doing and the impact that it has on on real people right can i just add oh, one yep. thing i think the 
some of this is, is about top down. We've been talking about that, but that bottom up is actually really important. So, in an, in the energy sector, we're talking about regional system plans, which are mechanisms to actually engage mm. local authorities, um, regional governments, and others to understand what matters for them in their future decarbonisation plan. So, does it fit with being an industrial cluster, hydrogen? Are they somewhere with more grid capacity? And then actually having those mechanisms to do that bottom up, I think will be key to, to delivering public support in this new guiding mind world. It can't just be top down. Right, thank you. And I've got, we've got three, I'm gonna link up three questions coming online, all really trying to get to grips with this kind of guiding mind model. Uh, one is indeed following on from this. So what does this mean for the regulators alongside these guiding mind um, model organizations. Then I'm going to add another online question. This is someone saying, hang on, we tried all this. Look at the Strategic <laughs> Rail Authority, a previous attempt at a guiding mind approach and eventually scrapped because ultimately these were decisions for politicians. And then finally, a low blow. What are the lessons from HS2? For the guiding mind model, was there a guiding mind there? What does that tell us? So there's some very pertinent issues here. Mary, why don't you, why don't you try to engage with these? So I think the first thing, maybe, maybe the very first thing in thinking about guiding mind models is to just get all the war stories from the past. So that is absolutely the right example, is to learn the lessons from you know, what, what happened with, what was the story with the Strategic Rail Authority? How do we just not um, you know, walk off the exact same cliff? Uh, again so I think and that is that is sort of my my word of warning around the the bureaucrats in the office we all want you know this this brilliant kind of um, godlike guiding mind and we're absolutely not going to get it so what can we learn from previous attempts how how can we distill as carefully as possible precisely what it is we want to change um, with this set of institutional arrangements rather than the last set of institutional arrangements and how can we mitigate all the risks uh, that, that the, the previous case studies throw up. So I do think that lessening, learning the lessons from the past is a massively important yeah. ingredient in this. Eileen, anything you've got on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm a huge fan of kind of, um, you know, using examples, trialing things and then building up. So I think I would maybe caution against the kind of, you know, that that you can design some perfect institutional model that's, you know, suddenly going to work. I think actually concentrating on you know, particular areas that we evidently don't do well at the moment, you know, the, you know um, even just at a local level, say in water, actually, why aren't we getting the innovations and the questions mm. and the solutions around actually are the trials for how you get surface water separation, yeah. you know, actually test some of these things and use real examples of what works, what doesn't into the institutional design, I think, would be of some value. But I have to say on that, and I'm sure the world has got better, but when I was engaged on some of these issues around science and research, and you mm. would talk, you'd need, you saw people who had R&D ideas around water and the environment, and you'd say, well, can't we get even some of the water companies to help sponsor it? They would say, off what will not allow water companies to spend much on R&D, so whereas in some other industrial sectors, for the private sector, you could do co-funding deals. It was harder to exactly. do with water companies 
than with some others because of the regulatory regime. Well, it, I mean, what you just said was you were told by the companies that Offort would not allow. Offort has a, has a revenue allowance and the water companies have statutory objectives and they have um, outcomes that they have to deliver. They have a lot more choice in how they deliver than I think the impression that's sometimes given. So, which again is why, just coming back to the point, I think real examples of going, okay, so where is the barrier? Okay, can we, can we have a go at that barrier? Um, and actually uncovering that, some, you know, that might be quite a small example, but actually tackling it rather than at the headline, I think might actually expose some quite interesting new thinking. Right, right, very good. Uh, just very quickly, I think for me, thinking about roles responsibilities, lessons from the past, you need to take a holistic approach at the new framework. So let's not think about what does the FSO do in isolation of the consequential changes on off-gem, yeah. the consequential changes on the transmission operators. And I think that's maybe one of my pleas probably to government and, and the regulator is to think about things a bit more holistically as we're designing this new model, because it will require changes for us, what we do. It will require changes for what Ofgem does, and unless you do that, we're just adding rather than creating streamlining. Right, thank you. Now, we are getting to an end. I'm just going to see if there's any, any other person physically with us today who has a comment or question before I turn to our panellists. No, I think everyone is happy. Well, look, um, so uh, this is an opportunity to range just a bit more widely. We focused absolutely on infrastructure, which was the main theme, but there are indeed other issues. Innovation is a great driver of uh, growth and something looking back to uh, being involved in privatisations in the 1980s in various sectors and in, um, inside government. The, I can't remember any meeting on privatisation where the R&D functions of the nationalised industries, as they then were, were discussed and we ever considered where they would be in the new world we were creating. Uh, indeed, the doctrine then, there was something called gold plating. And if anything, there was overinvestment and we need RPI minus X to stop these people getting away with, with soft and excessive capital investment. So it was a completely different world. But are we... So I'd like to invite our panel, and we'll, we'll start with Rob, move across and, give, uh, and uh, give Mary the last word. Just other things we can do as well. We've got a, a clear sense we need to do better on infrastructure. We've heard there's an enormous requirement. We've got an idea on the table of the organising mind. But then there are, there are other things. There's the fairness issue. We published a paper here a few months back uh, by Johnny Marshall, our green expert, just on the different... Burdens. If you've got a drive and an off-street parking and the cost of charging your car that way as against the cost for less affluent people who are parking their car on the street but for whom the cost of public charging is higher. So there's a whole host of distributional questions. There's the innovation issue. To what extent can we pile all these issues on the regulator or do we need to give the regulator a simple and clear objective like infrastructure and put the other objectives elsewhere? And any other final reflections you've got uh, briefly. So let's start with you, Rob. Cool. Uh, I think I would um, uh, not focus on giving more and more to the regulator. I think if you look at the regulatory duties that Ofgem has, it probably goes on to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten plus pages. Um, and I guess I challenge any organisation to be able to mm. sift through that to work out what's most important. So I think for me, I wouldn't be 
putting more and more on to uh, onto the regulators, uh, but then thinking carefully about what are the challenges that we face. I talked about the five things that, that we see. What's the role of each individual party in the system to do it? Because it can't just be a regulator, it can't be government, it can't be the industry. Um, we need to work together kind of collectively on some of these challenges because what we're trying to do is transform a whole infrastructure system. Thank you very much. Eileen? Yeah, so, um, you know, I do think I do think innovation is is kind of a, a core area and actually I think is kind of central and, and, and fine for economic regulators to think about how you incentivize that. So um, I agree with Rob about, you know, trying to avoid a proliferation of um, uh, duties. But I think, you know, if you think about innovation, it brings you back to um, making sure that regulators and all players here actually really focus on the purpose of what needs to be delivered and you know making sure that they're thinking about how you use uh, innovation to actually you know drive better outcomes I think should be to the fore. And Mary finally you know you thank you so much for writing this paper out today your final reflections on all this and what give us our marching orders. Um, oh well uh, I mean I suppose to, to sort of bring it back to economic regulators which is what I know um, the, the final thing I would add to what's been said already is I think there is more that we can do around um, accountability of regulators and a, a lot of those fairness issues are quite messy they don't divide neatly into um, you know tax and subsidy versus uh, cost allocation the whole thing's about EVs are, is a classic example and I think regulators should be better at explaining how they have thought about those issues and the trade-offs they have made and they should be honest and clear about that now so you know this is not terribly digestible stuff so accountable to who through what mechanisms some of it is rocking up in the media and just you know fronting up for your organization and um, explaining it to the public some of it is kind of turning up to Parliament and explaining to um, select committees or other committees that uh, why you've taken the, the choices you've done but I think regulators um, need to be willing to sort of emerge from the shadows and, and talk about some of this difficult stuff. Very good well thank you very much thank you to our panel